Hey, what not the podcasters? Pastor Wolfmiller here. Two posts in one day. That's something. But this is a um, this is a throwback. A couple of maybe a month ago, March eighth, we had in the worldwide Bible class a really important discussion of the humility of God as the author of the Bible. And I'd like to. It's, this is part of our continuing study of the life of Jacob together with Martin Luther, just reading through Luther's Genesis commentary and, and thinking about it, about it, letting it challenge us. And this is, I think, a really important um, discussion. So uh, I want to just drop the audio of this worldwide Bible class here in the podcast feed. You can find, uh, if you go to wolfmuller.co, hit the worldwide Bible class, you can find all those Bible studies. They're there. They're a, they're a playlist on my YouTube channel, St. Paul's YouTube channel. So you can find all the studies there as well. But I think this audio will be important. I think it, you'll enjoy it. So uh, so I'm going to leave it here for you. It's a longer one. I guess it'll be about 48 minutes or so. But again, I think it's well worth the listen. So thanks so much. God's peace be with you. Welcome to the Worldwide Bible Class. Pastor Brian Wolfner here. The Life of Jacob Together with Martin Luther, who's teaching us through the uh, Genesis. Let's dig into it. Now, we'll remember, let's set the stage. Okay, so we're in um, Genesis 29, where Jacob goes on his journey uh, here to the land of the people of the East. That's really kind of an interesting thing. We'll see what uh, Luther notes of that uh, in a little bit. Um, but then... Uh, and he and he comes to Haran. So let's just kind of set the stage here. I want to see if I can share the first the timeline with you. Let's see. This is my favorite, the Schwarzentrover Bible timeline. So let's see here. We are with Jacob there, and we're we're looking at here the main events, nineteen twenty eight is when these events are taking place, 1928, which is an amazing thing to think of, that Jacob, it, he, he is now closer to Jesus than we are. He's 1,928 years before Jesus is born. We're 2,000 on the other side. So Jacob, this, as, as old as this is, Jacob is you know, closer to the cross than we are to the cross. Uh, this is kind of amazing history. Remember, we'll remember at Isaac at this time, Isaac lived to be 180. Uh, Jacob lived to be 147. At this time, we have it that Jacob is about 77 uh, years old. And uh, he's heading out of, uh, let's just look at the map real quick. So he's leaving Beersheba. He's going north. Bethel, the map puts here. Luther wants it to be connected to Jerusalem, but anyway, right around there. But look, he's got a long way to go. Past Damascus. Past, here's Haran. Way up there. So, so this is going to be the vision, and this is going to be where he's headed. So it's it's a we, you know, we skip quite a bunch of travel here in the text when it just has him um he is the, the the vision is let's see the vision is here and it's a number of weeks to get up there 
But anyway, so he goes. Okay, so now we're in verse uh, chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey. That's a journey. And he came to the land of the people of the east. Luther's going to note for us, we'll get to it in a little bit, that when it says the people of the east, it's it's indicating that he didn't know. Uh, he didn't know where he was going. It's that, that he he doesn't say the specific place because there's a kind of a mystery to the travel here he's going. And he finally gets to a well in the field. Um, and there's flocks of sheep lying by it. And this is where he's going to finally realize that he's he's arrived. That's there. Okay. Now, also we'll notice the details that are here. Luther's going to contrast the details like, look, there's stone and they wanted to water the sheep and there were there was a large stone there and they had three flocks of sheep and all of these different details. And Luther said, why, why is the Holy Spirit so concerned with all of these little details that are there? Like Sodom, it's like three verses. Whoop. Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it's like three verses. Whoop. And now we get into all these details about the sheep and this conversation and everything. What's going on here? This is furthering the argument that Luther is making is that God is interested in the small stuff, not just the big heroic saintly stuff, but also the, the small stuff. So here, let's just, we, we did this paragraph last week, but just to kind of get a running start, this is the first thing that the very great patriarch, who at that time was the only bishop and a burning light in the whole world, that he has the blessing, the promise, and the word but he lives and, uh, and acts as if he has nothing at all. Why? This is not a man of the church, but a man of the home. He's very wretched. He performs his common domestic duties concerning which God prescribed nothing in his promises, just as he prescribed nothing about how he would help and guide him uh, 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 or about the outcome. Thus, he has not given us a promise that there will be peace this year and a rich yield of grain. Accordingly, I should not say, I do not know what will happen, therefore I will do nothing. No. So God has given us promises of the resurrection. He has not given us promises of the harvest. God has given us promises that, that on the last day, the moon will turn blood red, but he has not given us the promise that the moon is going to rise tomorrow. God has given us the promises of eternal life, but he's not given us the promises of waking up. But that does not mean that I just don't do anything. I don't have a promise that that any of the things that the Lord has given me and according to my vocation will come to anything. Well, I don't, I'm not to be concerned about that. God says, do your duty, leave the rest to me. He did not say everything will turn out successfully. I really like this, by the way. There's a danger. Hmm. You, this, this is this is some practical wisdom here, but it's 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 theological too. You do not have the promise of success. You do not have the promise that every endeavor will end well. But that doesn't mean you you don't act. In fact, it means we continue to act. There's a way that we have to be good at failing because then we're trying i think it's old dad who said uh uh you can't steer well this is probably an older saying you can't steer a boat that's sitting still so you got to get the boat moving and then you can steer it 
So, so this is not only theological, but just sort of practical. You, no, the Lord says, do your duty. You don't have to know how things will turn out or what will happen. You've been justified. Go then and exercise your faith in the household and in the state. For the knowledge of God's will and this vocation, thanks must be given to God that a man of the church, that is, one who has the word and faith, knows that he pleases God even in the lower stations and in this kind of life that has to do with the state and the household, whether he's a servant, a maid, a magistrate, or a subject. If he can only be part of the political and the domestic fear, sphere, he should give thanks to God and know that he has a God who's well-disposed and propitious toward him. So that God has given us faith that, and then sent us into the world, God be praised. And so the stuff that happens in the world, it's this is where the Lord wants us. And we, we are holy people because of faith, and then... And then the Lord blesses the works. This, so here we are in the new territory. This serves to console us when the examples of very great saintly patriarchs are set forth not only in sublime and heroic virtues, but also in the most insignificant and least important deeds. Again, this is Luther teaching us how to read the Bible and remembering the context that these are lectures that Luther's giving at the seminary and someone's taken down the notes and then they're going to publish it later and kind of edit it through. But... But Luther's encouraging the pastors here and all the people who are probably sitting in auditing the class or just listening because Luther was lecturing in these things. And he's he's giving them this comfort in the sword and despised works connected with domestic life, lest we despair or think that we're cast off and spurned by God when we're occupied with these duties of life. This, this, the doctrine of vocation, it's such a great comfort. We should know that all things are sanctified by the word and faith. Yet the word sorry, yet the world does not see this sanctity, but when it hears these common duties are related even about the saintliest men, it thinks that every exertion is wasted and that good time is poorly invested when one reads these legends. For the world is not worthy of seeing the glory of God, as the well-known statement puts it, away with the wicked, lest he see the glory of God. Only believers see and understand the works of God. Therefore, these works are precious in our eyes. Yes, in the eyes of God. Now, what does that mean it was when he says the glory of God? What is he talking about? Seeing the glory of God. Is he talking about going up into heaven and seeing this kind of radiance? No, what's the glory of God? Is Jacob going on a journey? <laughs> that's the glory. It's the normal stuff that's there. So that the Christian looks at the world I've been thinking about this. We were on a uh, retreat this weekend. Will Whedon came down, and he was teaching us. And uh, and he mentioned this idea. That in, if you read through the large catechism, there's a quote from St. Augustine that Luther quotes, oh, I don't know, three times. And he goes on and on about how it's the greatest thing that Augustine ever said. And I'm I just look at that, and I'm like, come on, Luther. Surely... Surely, that's not the greatest thing. But Pastor Will Whedon, I think, got me thinking about this a little bit. The phrase that Luther quotes so much is verbum fit elementum, uh, verbum et elementum fit sacramentum. When the word joins the element, then you have the sacrament. 
Now, Luther mentions this when he's talking about baptism. He mentions it when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and we understand what this is saying. So you have the word, and especially the Lutherans understand, we have the word of promise, do this in uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And then you have the uh, you have the element, which is in the one hand water, or on the other hand, the body and the blood with the bread and the wine. And then you have baptism or you have the supper. I got to let some people in here. Now, by, by the way, um, it sh we should just note that the element in the supper, we normally think the elements is the bread and the wine, but the body and the blood are also the elements in the supper. In fact, they're the main elements in the supper. Okay, So you have the word of promise, and specifically, remember, we have the promise of forgiveness of sins, and that's what makes the the these two sacraments so so profound so you have this idea here again from from augustine the now this is going somewhere so i think the uh so the word joins the element and you have the sacrament now the reason why i thought come on that's not that's not that important luther's because i thought it was very specific talking about baptism and the lord's supper but i think and i need to look up the original from augustine but i think that luther sees in this something much bigger in other words, and and the reason why, and and Whedon opened this up to me, because I was asking about, uh, we were studying Thessalonians, and at the end of Thessalonians, Paul's talking about order in the in the church, uh, and and how anyone who walks disorderly is to be um, rejected in the church. Uh, let's see, where does it say disorderly here? Wow. Uh, 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 is that it? No. Uh, anyway, this this oh, the whole question about being disorderly, I was asking about. And um and he and and Whedon went to this to talk about disorder. I said, now wait a minute. What's going on there? Either he's kind of crazy or he's he's wise beyond my even imagine. And I think it might be, I think it might be that because, um, uh, sorry, I'm just looking for this disorder. If someone's going to, in the chat, is going to find this disorder passage for me before I do. Uh, but it's a, it's a couple of times when, um, maybe it's not in the ESV idleness. no, Atoxus is the word, and and uh, and Whedon brought up this this quote from from Luther at to quoting Augustine to talk about disorder, and what I realized is that this text has a has a much broader application. There's the element. This is just think of the element as creation. But when and 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 we are of this creation, we are stuff. But when the word comes to the stuff, then it becomes holy. And, and so this is a, a much, much broader thing. So that when the word comes to the stuff, you first have 
order. And that's what happens in the beginning. Second Thessalonians 2, thank you on the chat for 2, 17 to 20. Mm, am I there? Wait a minute. That's not right. No. First Thessalonians 2, maybe. Nope, that doesn't seem right. So uh, so that we have order that the Lord's, it's the Lord's word that brings order to creation. So we see that in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, there was uh, there was chaos and then the Lord's word steps in and now everything is in an orderly way. But then there's the fall, zoom, disorder, but now the word comes back and that word makes things holy. So that... Um, so that uh, so that the word comes to say, let's just say our our work. And now when that word comes along, even establishing the work, then that becomes a holy work. Do you see that? It becomes a vocation, a calling. So that even in the most humble stuff, when God's word comes to it, it is now holy stuff, sanctified stuff. You have, for example, in creation, you have something like marriage. But when the word of God is there, it's holy matrimony. The family itself is holy. In fact, remember how Luther talks about this, the state and the church and the, and the family. He, saw, he calls these holy orders holy orders and that's and that's in contrast to the monastery they said these are the holy orders jo go and join the benedictines or the augustinians or the whatever 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 and he says no the really holy orders of god is this it's whenever the word joins to creation now what happens if you disconnect the word from creation you you have you have two problems when you disconnect the world from creation. You can, and you can go two different directions if you do this. You can, on the one hand, just have the word alone without creation, and that's mysticism, pietism, something like that. You, you have the word alone. You, don't, you lose the sacraments. You see, the, the, the water doesn't matter. It's just, that's the earthly stuff. Maybe, maybe we can call it Gnosticism. In fact, the whole splitting of the word and the element is Gnosticism, is the idea there. And then you could just have the, so you can go this way, or you can just go onto the pagan way, and we just have this creation with no order, and now everything is chaos. And the thing is, if you have, and, and let's just think about this for our, for our own context. If you have creation, if you have stuff, Without the word, then you have no meaning. You have no purpose. It has no value. You have a crisis that's there. It has no order. And you and 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 this is probably what we're what we're facing nowadays. You have this you have this separating of the word and the element of the of the word of God and the and this and the stuff of creation. You deny, that's a denial of the incarnation really. And so you go one way towards the word by itself, or you go the other way towards creation by itself. And this is what we call secular 
it's this religion of of materialism of this monistic worldview and and because there's no word there's no meaning you have to make it up or recognize that it's not even there so this just leads to nihilism so that it becomes what's the whatever what's the opposite of sacrament what's the opposite of holy um profane that's the word if the word does not join the element i wonder if we can say so let's just do the opposite let's let's think through this a little bit if we have the if you have the word and the elements and the stuff separated from one another then everything becomes profane everything becomes unclean unholy is that a, that profane looks funny is it f i n prof how do you spell profane unholy what good am i without spell check everything becomes filthy so i'm starting to think some more about this the word becomes flesh the word joins the element I did spell it right. According to Lois. I don't know if I trust Lois' spelling. I guess I do. So that it's the word that... So, okay. So here here I am looking at my family. I said, that's just a kind of a normal family. Or here I am looking at my the weeds in my front yard. I'm like, that's just normal weeds in the normal yard. And yet the Lord says, be fruitful and multiply. The Lord says... Uh, it's not good for man to be alone. The Lord says, he put the man in the garden. And so now all of the daily stuff becomes holy stuff. Do you see it? I think that's what's going on here. Anyway. So the so we're occupied with these duties of life. We should know that all these things are sanctified by the word and faith. The world can't see it. The world, and that's the point. The world has disconnected the word from everything that we see. It doesn't have a word at all. In fact, it re, it rejects the idea that there even is a word, and therefore everything is profane. Can you could you imagine? Just think about. Remember how Paul says that the that the Christians are those who have hope, which means that those who do not know Christ ha do not have hope, which means that everything in the world is, to the unclean, everything is unclean. They live in a world of uncleanness. Oh, what sympathy. I'm thinking about this some. I'm going to look at you guys. We, uh, We sometimes are tempted to be jealous that the world has more than we do or something like that. That is really the precise opposite of the truth. That those who do not have Christ also do not have the world and they don't have themselves. They don't have anything. There should be a great sympathy. Um that the Christian has for people who don't know Christ, who have no hope. Okay. Every, I mean, can you just try to imagine living in a world where everything is unholy? Ugh. Ugh. 
Okay. Uh, the world can't see it. Okay. Now, let's see if we can do three paragraphs today. Nor should you reflect or wonder why the Holy Spirit takes pleasure in the description of these servile and despised works. But listen to St. Paul when he says, Romans 15, 4, this is a key passage, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now you say to yourself, this is, okay, so here, this is this connection, and this is a key theological connection, that the scriptures are given to us for encouragement and for hope. There's a, a beautiful line in the formula of Concord where they take this text, Romans 15, 4, and the other text about the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, 16, which says all scriptures are written were inspired by God and useful for instruction and correction and for rebuke and correction and training up in righteousness so that the man of God might be perfectly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work, might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that they take these two scriptures as a pair and they say, look, the scriptures are given for hope and for instruction uh, in good works. And if you have a doctrine that destroys hope or destroys good works, it's not scriptural doctrine. And they apply that to the Calvinist doctrine of double predestination. It was pretty amazing, actually. Now, some of you say, hey, this, this uh, Romans 14 passage sounds an awful lot like the prayer that we pray all the time, uh, the colic for the word. We pray that we may, we may read Mark inwardly digested that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we might embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life. Well, it is. In fact, that prayer, that colic for the word was written for the second Sunday in Advent by probably Cramner or whoever wrote the Book of Common Prayer. And that's the Sunday that this is the epistle text. So there's a connection between the two. In fact, the Anglicans call the second Sunday in Advent Word Sunday. Or at least they used to when they believed the Bible back in the good old days. I shouldn't say that. There's a bunch of Anglicans that still believe the Bible, most of it, and they're in a big fight with the Canterbury. What a mess they're in. Uh, how about that, Canterbury? They said, well, we're not going to we're not gonna marry two men, but we are going to bless the marriage of two men or two women. And it's like, it's, it's like they were sitting around in a room and they said, hey, let's figure out the thing that we can do to make sure that everybody's mad at us. I mean, that nobody will be happy. I think they're doing the same thing in Australia. It's like, you want to find the middle way? Every, you, some people run in this way and some people run in this way. And you want to stand here in the middle and say, okay, that's like, you know, the safest place to be, I guess, is in the, in the battlefield when people are shooting at each other. Neither hot nor cold. I believe firmly, oh, this is, here's Luther on the scripture. I believe, if we believe firmly, as I do, even though I believe it weakly, that the Holy Spirit himself and God, the creator of all things, is the author of this book and of such unimportant matters as they seem here to be to the flesh, then we would have the greatest consolation. That's what Paul says. So that God is the author of the book. God as author. God as storyteller. Now, this is not stories. This is history. But God as historian is a major theme here in Luther and one that we need to, we need to pick up because there's something beautiful about that. There's something beautiful about the fact that not only did the Lord do these things, 
but that he also picked the words to describe the things that were done and that he, God is the one. To, can you imagine this? You, you would think, well, okay, if God is going to write a book, he's probably going to tell us the things about himself because nobody knows those things, but he's not, he's writing a book about himself, but he's also, God is writing a book about Jacob. I mean, that is amazing. If you just, you know, you ask, go and ask the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's there, inspiring Moses, whatever, to write this thing. And you go and you say to the Holy Spirit, hey, what do you write about? And he says, Jacob, how we wandered up to Haran. Wow. That is comforting. This is the point that Luther is making on the fact that God is the author of this. If you if you lose the inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration, you lose all this comfort because you, you see that if those the, so the progressives who love this higher critical stuff and say that uh, he he says that you uh, uh, like the that that it was just all I mean this is the they make the Bible into these kind of political wranglings, right? Like you have the, you have the J's fighting against the E's and the L's and you have this, and it's all political propaganda and that God didn't have anything to do with the inspiration of the scripture. He couldn't be bothered with it. That's the point. Like God can't be bothered with words, with the, with the syllables. He's got bigger things to do or he's distant from it. His, his, his inspiration is not an inspiration of words. That means God is not an author he might do things, but he doesn't write about them. God can't be concerned. It's the same despising of the text that the Catholic Church did in the Middle Ages that Luther's fighting against. This despising of it, and you, lo and you lose so much, so much comfort that the Lord wants us to have. God is the author of these things. Our hearts would be able to glory in this and to be, and to be proud. <laughs> this is the to be proud that God deigns to be mindful of and to remember these patriarchs, and he did not want to forget them. He wrote down, he wrote, he wrote it down about them. He wanted not only their heroic virtues, but also the sordidness of their works to be praised. We we think of sordidness as like stained and filthy, and I don't think that's what Luther means here, just the humility of it. To be adorned with these descriptions as with gems and gold, and to be set forth to the whole world in order that they might be spread abroad, read, and become known to the believers, therefore, all things to work together for the good of God, for the good those who were called according to his purpose. Yes, for glory, even the things that are the least important, most sordid, most despised. For they see that God takes pleasure in these things, so that he sings psalms, not only about the glorious and extraordinary virtues of the saints, but also about their most insignificant little works, because they are the works of God. It's the, just to imagine that when God decides to write a book, he writes it about you, about your parents, Adam and Eve, and about the father. I mean, just, God takes pleasure in his works whether they're very great or very small. 
He takes pleasure to our very great consolation. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Psalm 56, 8, David says, thou hast put my tears in thy sight. Thou hast kept count of my tossings. Is it not true that God has nothing else to do than to keep count of David's tears and tossings? <laughs> this is, is he not occupied with governing the world and hearing the choirs of angels who praise and bless him without end? What can be said that's more wonderful? Yet it's true. To keep count of the tears and tossings of David is also the care that is incumbent on God. Another psalm says, He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And Moses says to Pharaoh, Not a hoof shall be left behind. Not only the men, the women, the children, the beasts of burden will go out of them, but whatever they have, even the most insignificant hoof, we shall not leave behind. Accordingly, not only the heroic virtues of the, and the glorious works he does through us, likewise the blood, the death, the very grievous conflicts of the saints are precious in the sight of the Lord, but even the meanest hooves themselves are precious. Listen to Christ. He does better than this. He says, Matthew 10, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Jesus preaches this twice in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew what 6, and again in Matthew 10. He preaches about your hair. Ah. You shall not lose a hair. What I ask is more trifling in value and more despised in the human body than a hair or a whisker or a nail. Yet all these are numbered and cared for by the Father who is in heaven. This is how these examples of the trifling and sordid works in the saints are to be dealt with, in order they may teach and console us. For we do not deny that they are mean and of trifling value if we look only at the instrument in which they are done, the people who are doing them. But one must also consider God himself, the author, the author, the one who wrote it down, the one who says, I care about these little things. For whether you see the sordidness or the gems of the saints and their works, yet they are pleasing to God, who is the author of trifling and noble works alike, for they are the works of God. And God cooperates. Do you see how God was there when, when Jacob was being driven into the wilderness by Esau and by his mom and going to find a what? God was there doing it. But then God also had these things written down for us. Therefore, it's a great and immeasurable consolation for those who believe. And these things are described in order that we may see how tenderly God loves and embraces us and what great and anxious concern he has for us. So closely does he look at me that he is afraid that I may lose my hair. But if he numbers and cares for hairs, he has far greater concern for the body, the soul, the blood, and all the sufferings. Cat says in the chat, if the very head of our hair are numbered, how much more are tears? Indeed. But these things are too sublime. The, 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 it's, the, the, the humility of the word of God shows his mercy. But more, it's, it's just, it's mercy, but it's more than mercy. It's a, it's a that he, that he comes down to us. 
These things are too sublime. We don't believe the more worthless and sordid the works are, the less we believe the very filth and meanness of the works is a hindrance to our faith. Otherwise, we would magnify without end the mercy of God in these very small and unimportant works, and our faith would be strengthened very much. For so great is God's concern and solicitude for us that he cannot forget one hair, one little tear, one little worry, so to speak. And when the Holy Spirit goes along so weakly in describing his saints, he means that a most insignificant of all the works of the saints please God very much. A Christian is something precious. There is nothing so insignificant in him that it does not please God. To shed one's blood, to die, to sweat, to fight and struggle against the devil is in reality something great and decidedly pleasing to God. Therefore, conclude as follows. When you are a believer, then even physical, carnal, and animal duties are pleasing to God. Whether you eat, drink, awake, or sleep, these are purely bodily and animal things. So great a thing is faith. Just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Mm. Okay, let's see. Um, I wonder, I just, Luther's going to go, he's going to, yeah, let's see. We got. I wonder if we can get through this here. Let me let me move a little bit faster through this. Although it's marvelous stuff. And and you guys, if you have questions or thoughts on this, to put them in the chat, and we'll take them up in a little bit. But let me let me try to move quickly through a couple of pages. Therefore, uh, see to it that you become a Christian and a person pleasing and acceptable through the Word, through baptism and the sacraments. If the person believes and adheres to the word and does not persecute the word, but gives thanks for it, then you should do nothing else than what Solomon says. Go eat your bread with enjoyment, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already appointed what, uh, what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which is given under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you will toil under the sun. What more will you require? What could be said more pleasantly, more delightfully, more clearly. So believe in God and then go about your business. And the Lord will give you some heroic deeds to do if he wants it, you to, but just don't worry because, because you yourself are sanctified by the word, then, then God now is pleased with everything that you're doing in your vocation and calling. It's true, of course, that even in the godless, diligent application to duty is pleasing to God. This is so it's good, even if you're not a if you're a pagan, it's good that you do good. Okay. But unbelief and vainglory prevent them from relating their works to the glory of God. For the fault and sin is in the person who does not please God. Therefore, although the good works even of the godless merit their reward in this life, and just note that good works merit reward. You do good, good things happen. Good works also merit the devil's anger. And so it might be a loss in the end. You know, you're not sure how it's going to come out. You can't say, oh, I managed to do a good work and things are going to be better. Well, it, you could have made, you should do the good works anyways, and they do merit reward. So that's just kind of a basic thing. So that's fine. Yet if they are not kept count of, not collected in a bottle, according to what's stated in Psalm 56, verse 8. So the Lord does not, if you don't have faith, the Lord is not gathering them up. They're just, but the tears of the saints, their flights, their trials, and their smallest and greatest works are kept count of to be praised and celebrated forever. Uh, it says in Revelation, uh, their works do follow them. They're resting from their labors, 
and their works do follow them. Therefore, what Paul points out in Romans 15, 4, when he says that nothing has been written in the Holy Scripture in vain, is exceedingly sweet consolation. For it is certain that these very mean and insignificant words are set forth in order that God's good pleasure in his saints may be pointed out. Uh, we had that already. Psalm 147, 11. Let's get it again, though. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. I was, we were talking about this the other day with the prodigal son, because we think, boy, how nice it is, that the pro how much joy the prodigal has in being welcomed back by the father. But, but Jesus doesn't care about that. The thing that he cares about is the joy of the father in welcoming back his son. God is happy with you. You might be happy with God. Okay, good. God is happy with you. Better. You might delight in God. Good. God delights in you. Better. You might take pleasure in Christ, your Savior, but Christ takes pleasure in you. This is the point. This is Psalm 147. For the remission of their sins and their acceptance always remained, and they live under the cloud and shadow of God's wings and under his protection as long as they are in grace. This we should also apply to ourselves. For if we are Christians and truly godly, we know that we are alike, that we are like those very great saints. If not at the highest rank of the greatest virtues, nevertheless, in the meanest and sordid deeds of this life, and that so far as the care and protection of God are concerned, we are loved no less than they are. For as a sure pledge, this most tender and burning love we have, uh, for as a sure pledge of this most tender and burning love, we have God's Son, for whose sake the Father loves us and makes us sit in heavenly places. How do you know that God loves us? That was the first, that was the first article that I wrote for the church newsletter in 2005. How can I know that God loves me? And the answer is Jesus. The, the, the love of God is as sure as the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. And if you want to undo the love of God, you got to go back in time and pry Jesus off the cross and, and somehow keep him from getting back on it. You just can't do it. We should know that what is stated very sweetly, look at the tender, the tender, burning love, sweetness, precious, delight, the kindness there. The, uh, Psalm 37 the steps of the man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. This also applies to us. There we read, oh yeah, the steps of the man are from the Lord, and he establishes him whose way he delights. Oh, look at this. So who's the one who delighting? Who's delighting here? Uh, uh, we, we, who delights in his way? We would normally read this and say, that the his way is the Lord and the one who's delighting, that's me. Luther says, no, 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 no. You got it backwards. He, the Lord, delights in your way. See? Uh, he delights. And though he fall, me, shall not be cast headlong. Let us only believe. And give assent to this promise. This is always faith that grabs a hold of this. For just as the parents guard their little ones with all care, lest perchance they fall, lest they stumble somewhere or are offended, and if they see a spot or a booger smeared on their cheek, 
I, mucus, that sounds very, if they see a spot or a booger smeared on the cheek of the child, they dry it and they wipe it off, which an enemy or a stranger doesn't do. And if a feather sticks to their hair, they comb it and adorn it. So great also is God's care, love, and true fatherly feeling toward all who believe in him. Jesus wipes our nose. He gets the, 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 the fluff out of our hair like a parent doting over the child. These things in the main have been stated concerning what is taught in this chapter. What follows pertains simply to, oh, that's where I wanted to get. What follows pertains simply to domestic matters. We'll scan it and examine the grammatical points. So here Luther makes a break and he's going to go back to, he's going to sort of walk through the text and hit the highlights. That's what's going on there. Ah, perfect. We did it. I thought we, uh... yep, yep. That's good. So that's where I want to stop. Um, Luther has something to say about allegories, so that has to do with his idea of how to interpret the scripture. He and and then he's gonna he's gonna also talk about the East. He's gonna talk about what's going on here with with the strength. How wh why Jacob was able to roll the stone away. How the Holy Spirit gave him the strength to do that. Uh, that that's all coming. But this is a good spot to stop. So just to get this picture in your mind that the Lord um, treats us like a like a gentle parent treats their child. Did I tell you this parable um, of the portrait? So here's here's this that I, I've been working on for a while now. So you might have heard it before, but if you can imagine that there's a man who uh, hires someone to paint a portrait of him. And he's a a, a wealthy man, very rich. So he puts out the news. I'd like to hire uh, an artist to paint a portrait. And he gets all the applications and he sees one and it says, I am the finest painter and I will paint the finest portrait of you. And it'll be a perfect representation of you and your glory. So he hires him for some incredible amount of money. I don't know, a million dollars. And, uh, and he sits down for his portrait and the artist sits across the table and next to the artist sits the man's granddaughter. And she's sitting next to the artist and she pulls out her, her paper and her crayons and starts to draw. So the artist is working and the granddaughter is working. They're both working. They're both working. And they both at the same time say, I'm finished. And they both turn around and they hold up their art. And on the granddaughter's page is a crude crayon drawing, the huge head and 10 fingers on each hand and everything is all out of whack. It's just so goofy. And the, and the grandfather says to the granddaughter, it's perfect. I love it. And the artist is very excited because he turns his painting around and it is the exact same painting as the granddaughter drew crayons. Everything's wonky. The ears are funny. Everything's out of place. And the grandfather says to him, and he, and he says, here's your million dollar work. And the, he says, get out of my sight. You, you see the difference is it was the, the works were the same. But one was the granddaughter was doing the works out of love and affection for the grandfather, and the other was doing it so that he could earn something from him. 
And it's the, so that the Lord, it's this, so the same way with God and us that when we come before the Lord and we're, Hey, here's my works. Now, can you give me heaven to get out of my sight? But if we cut like this, Lord, here's, this is, this is a, a painting I made for you. I love you. And he delights in it because of the person. Ugh. All right, let's pray. And we'll talk about it some more. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks that you uh, do not uh, despise us or cast us off or um, th that, you that you don't just look on the heroic events in world history or even our own lives, but that you care about also the small, very small things and that you've set us to, to do your works in our vocations and calling. We pray that you would give us the eyes of Jesus to see your pleasure in the humble business of this life uh, and that you're with us and that uh, when your word joins the stuff, then it is holy. Uh, grant us this uh, confidence and this peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. See you next week. You all will have to let me know if this is helpful or not, dropping in the audio of some of the other Bible studies into the podcast feed. So you can get a hold of me, wolfmuller.co slash contact. Send me an email there and, and let me know what you think. That's also where you can drop your questions. And so hopefully we'll be getting to more of those questions uh, later on in the podcast. So thanks again for being part of the fun. Uh, Wolf Mueller, wait, 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 wait. Wednesday Whatnot is the free weekly newsletter. That's where you can sign up for for the good stuff at wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday. You can subscribe to that for five bucks a month and it gets you nothing more than subscribing for free. It just helps out the cause, which is great. So thank you for doing that for those of you who are subscribed. But otherwise, just jump in for free and get the stuff. It's great. This is a, uh, there's so much good, joyful, helpful things to reflect on. I try to gather some of those things up each week. So thanks uh, for being along for the ride. God's peace be with you. Talk to you soon.